This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. Okay, so that talk that Fidimala said I'm giving sounds like a really good talk to give. <laughs> but anyway, I'm giving another one. I'm sure it'll be fine. <laughs> Most of it's the talk that I gave in February on a regional order weekend in Taraloka. So apologies to those of you who were there that heard it. But before I start, I'll say thank you. I've been thinking about myself as a conditioned being. This is because I was doing the Satipatthana this morning. And I've been thinking about the influences and conditions that have been conditioning me over the last 24 years. And in particular, that's been the Sangha. Yeah, so I'd like to say thank you to, I suppose, the 40 or 50 women that I've lived with for the last 24 years, lived and worked with, and it probably adds up to about 50. And, well, all of you have functioned as peers, as Kalyanamitras, and also women who've looked towards me for Kalyanamitrata, and that's drawn something out of me as well. There's quite a lot of you, and I just want to say thank you, because you have modified and conditioned my nature a great deal. So I do believe that what is standing in front of you is pretty much the product of 24 years in the Sangha. And the other thing that's been conditioning me quite a lot is my own Bodhisattva vows, which is my own wish to hand on that lineage that I am so fully participating in. Yeah, so this talk, well, it's interesting because I'm starting with saying thank you to those people that have been in my life. But actually this talk begins with a lot of points that David Smith put into his article where he criticised the Western Buddhist order for their emphasis mainly on friendship and their lack of vertical training or vertical teaching. So quite a lot of the first part of my talk is a critique of his points. I do have quite a bit of sympathy for David Smith, actually, and I myself have had quite a lot of doubts about our emphasis on communication and spiritual friendship. I think maybe four years ago or six years ago, I can't remember, I gave a short talk on the convention about are there retreats in the order? And that was partly saying, do we know how to go on retreat or do we just know how to have a party? That was putting it quickly. I also think... At Taraloka, well, not only have I lived and worked with a great number of people, I'm also involved in an awful lot of people through retreats. And there's a whole kind of emphasis on friendship, which became more and more of a burden for me. It's like every time I opened up a retreat, at the start of the retreat, I'd look around the room and think, well, how am I supposed to relate to these people on retreat? Am I supposed to think of myself as a friend to these 24 women that are sitting in front of me? And then do exactly the same three weeks later. And I became more and more keen just to call myself a teacher and less keen to think of myself as a friend. It just got too complicated for me because I had such strong values, I think, around what a friend was and I couldn't live up to them. So I did start with quite a lot of sympathy for David Smith. So what he did was he wrote an article which you can read. Well, it was originally published only for the order to read, but now I think it's public. So you can pretty much... I think you just type in David Smith and Spiritual Plateau and I think you get the uh, criticisms that he's talked about. He's withdrawn it, has he? Okay, all right then. Oh, well, maybe shall I give this talk? (laughs) (laughs) So what he was trying to do was just... 
I suppose he was attempting to show that the FWO and WBO, maybe TBSMG as well, function too much in a horizontal model. In a way, he was saying that we bypass a very strong and important spiritual component, which is the vertical dimension. And what he called that was the authentic spiritual teacher. So he said we rely too much on the horizontal and not enough on the authentic spiritual teacher. And the reason we don't rely on the authentic spiritual teacher is that they don't actually exist in this movement. So he talks quite a bit about the relationship between the disciple and that teacher. It's very precise and I think it's very, very accurate. So a few points that he makes. The vertical perspective requires a conviction in your teacher's ability, a looking up to with a willingness and spirit of surrender to a spiritual authority that cannot be brought down to your normal level. It is born of faith and of trust. It is a place where a more formal type of relationship will naturally take place. It's a crucial psychological space between you and that teacher that will form. He says this is a so-called vertical perspective that will come into being, like between you and that teacher or you and that guru, a vertical perspective will come into being. And then he tells us why it's so important. He said the formality is very important. It creates a crucial dharmic environment, which I find a really beautiful phrase, actually. A crucial dharmic environment where real change and even authentic awakening becomes possible. He calls it a healthy space where sticky attachments and worldly considerations cannot take place and will not interfere with this special environment. It is also a healthy place because you can trust it. And it is a proper teacher-student environment and one that would be impossible to create with someone considered not of that vertical status. So in conclusion, he says, the whole of the history of Buddhism demonstrates that without this vertical dimension or this hierarchical form in place and skillfully nurtured, authentic awakening will not happen. Interesting enough, Fantis actually described exactly the same conditions. In that lecture, is a guru necessary? So it's a lecture he gave in 1970. First of all, he talks about what the guru isn't. So they're not the head of a religious group, for instance. They're not a teacher. Oh dear. In other words, they're not a teacher in that they're not just somebody merely passing on information. They're not a father substitute, and they're not a problem solver. In other words, he says, the contact should be relational. It's a relationship. It's existential, which I find... You do meet that, don't you? In yourself, you meet people where you know the contact has got a meaning that's existential. So it's a real communication between people, which is not just a sharing of thoughts and experiences, but a communication of being, action and interaction. It requires both parties to be fully themselves and in relation to one another. And the guru or teacher is to be themselves in relationship to the disciple. That's all that is required of them. They're not needed to teach anything in particular. The disciple is not there to learn, but simply to allow the contact with the guru to have an impact. In other words, we're just allowing our psyche, our spiritual life to be modified by the greater depth of this other being. So Bandi says vertical communication is very different from horizontal communication. The disciple grows in the direction of the guru's higher level of being and consciousness. But the guru does not become correspondingly more like the disciple. The disciple is compelled to grow through the intensity of the communication. 
through that communication, the guru also grows. So he has to answer the question, is a guru necessary? And he says two things are necessary to spiritual growth. One is the experience of suffering, maybe just simply contact with life. And the other is contact with more highly developed people. So both seem to be arguing for the same experience. Both seem to agree on the need for vertical relationship, the guru or the authentic teacher. They both seem to agree on the kind of relationship that is required between both parties. So is a guru necessary? It's very interesting, isn't it? Because Vanti is saying that it is. But he hasn't set himself up as a guru. So where is it? Where is that guru? Where is that authentic teacher? So David Smith had a good look round at us, and he said, mm, I, don't think it, I don't think it exists. I'm going to quote you a few quotes from a couple of Western teachers, which Tenzin Palmo quotes in her book, Cave in the Snow. Very interesting little articles in that. So this is from Andrew Harvey. I'm very grateful for all my relationships with my teachers, but I've come to understand that you can be frozen by that relationship. Frozen into a position of infantilism. It can enforce in you all sorts of inabilities to deal with the world, and it can also corrupt the master. What the new thinkers were suggesting in the place of the guru was a spiritual friend, a figure who did not claim to be enlightened, who did not wish to be regarded as infallible and given total obedience, but who would walk the path with the seeker, a democratic solution befitting Western culture. And Tenzin Palmo herself says, I think it's more important for the West to practice Buddhism and rely on having good teachers rather than gurus. They're not necessarily the same thing. A guru is a very special relationship, but you can have many, many teachers. Atisha had 50 teachers. Most teachers are perfectly capable of guiding us, and we're perfectly capable of guiding ourselves. People can put off practice forever, waiting for the magic touch that is going to transform them, or throwing themselves on someone who is charismatic without discriminating whether they are suitable or not. We should just get on with it. If you meet someone with whom you have a deep inner connection, great. If not, the Dharma is always there. It's not helpful to get off on the guru trip. It's better to understand the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha. So is there a vertical dimension in the order? So David Smith tells us, no, the Western Buddhist order does not have teachers that are equipped in that way. They haven't had the experience and the transmission heart-to-heart of a heart-to-heart relationship spread over years of training. Can these horizontal teachers really aspire to deep, authentic insight when they themselves have not had the experience of vertical training? No, our practices only go to Crewe and not to Glasgow, which means they only stop halfway. Maybe I'll just mention that Taraloka, which is quite near Crewe, <laughs> they looked for a place which was very near a very big station, and that's why it's near Crewe. So people from Glasgow can get there more easily than if it was, say, in uh, Kent, and not feel like they were going backwards. So David Smith tells us that the Western Buddhist order, as a horizontal approach, has to compensate for its incompleteness by putting in place a system that is rigid and uncompromising, so as to protect its weaknesses with a loss of freedom and spaciousness that characterises traditional systems of practice. 
it's kind of interesting. A lot of the time, people tell me how to become freer. They're kind of loosening me off. That's mainly what my feedback is. I used to have this image when I was a Mitra in Glasgow. When I was a little child, you had these little toys that kind of have little pedals as feet. I don't know if you ever had this. You can slightly wind them up, maybe, and they, they kind of go off like that, don't they? And they go straight across the room until they get to a table leg. And then they go... So I think my spiritual life looked a little bit like that. And then my spiritual friends used to carefully kind of lift me up and place me on the other side of the table leg, and off I'd go again. Pretty much like clockwork. Probably it's a sense of having quite a lot of energy and not enough discrimination or something. So I find it quite interesting, this idea of how if we don't have an authentic vertical teacher or a strong vertical dimension in our lives, we get a bit kind of trapped and regimented. I think there is some truth in that. I often think when people are using jargon or are very literal, it's because they've really lost touch with a spiritual dimension, basically. They're not really drawing on principles that they're in contact with at all. They're using words that could make sense, but they don't really know what they are. And they actually do create a lot of restriction around them. So we do have to be careful of that. So David Smith talking about the teachers not having experience and the transmission of a heart-to-heart relationship spread over years of training. There was a question-answers transcription in Shabda, I think in December last year. And it was a question-answers between the preceptors, public preceptors, I think, and uh, Banti. And I'm just going to quote some of that. So Parami asks the question, Yesterday, when we met, we talked about the concept of lineage. You said that you felt that there is definitely a transmission that happens at ordination, and that something has come through you to us as a college, and that we continue that. Could you say more about that, please? So this is Parami asking Banti about the transmission that happens at ordination. And Banti has a sort of threefold lineage, which he then expounds. Well, I would say that there is a sort of threefold lineage. There is a lineage of teaching, because in the FWO we have our own approach to the Dharma, which has been determined mainly by the books that I've written and the talks that I've given and so on. There is the tradition of a certain way of teaching the Dharma and a certain view of the Dharma. That is the lineage of teaching which one keeps alive by study, and especially study of my own writings. Then there's the lineage of practice. That is to say, all the practices I have taught, the mindfulness of breathing, the metabhavna, and the various sadhanas, the six-element practice, reflections on the nadanas, and so forth. And of course, one could say that into that stream, into that lineage, may have entered certain emphases given by certain leading order members. So that is the lineage of practice, which is kept up, obviously, by practice and by the handing on of different practices to succeeding generations. And then there is what I call the lineage of inspiration. Because from me to others, and from others yet to others, there flows, one might say, something which isn't just the teachings and it isn't just the practice. There is something above and beyond that which is communicated personally and which I know many people experience at the time of their private ordination. This lineage of inspiration can only be communicated by personal contact, and that is why, in connection with the private preceptor and the private ordination, that personal element is so important. I've heard that at the moment of the private ordination, something happens. People say, very many of them say, it's as though something was transmitted.
So I'm kind of assuming that does fit everybody's experience in this room, that something was transmitted at their private ordination. Certainly that happened in my experience. Sangadevi, who was my preceptor, said, when I said to her later, I said, I'm sorry, I cried all the way through that. And she said, only very gently, suddenly. <laughs> and my experience was that more and more aspects of my life just gradually came into the room as I was receiving my ordination. As if all the years that I'd been working towards it gradually filled up the whole room until all parts of me received that ordination and was ordained. It also started a whole process in me where I was very, very alive to the Dharma, I suppose, which I'll say a bit more about later. But I do think it's a very, very special time for us, the time of private ordination. We're often very receptive and we are very alive. And I remember Samata asking me, who's one of my Kalyanamitras, she said to me, are you a stream entrant? And I said, "Uh, I don't think so. And I said, I don't think so because I don't confess every time I do something, you know, I feel is unethical. And she said, yes, but even so, like that, and we left it open. And uh, it was lovely to be asked that question, and I sort of knew what she meant, because there was a great momentum in me, and surely that's all it is. I mean, a stream entrant is simply just having a lot of momentum behind them. And years later, when I was studying with Ratnaguna, he was sort of teaching us a bit about a particular sutta, which is describing the nature of weakening the fetters. And it is possible for periods of your life to be completely free of the first three fetters. So maybe during that time, that's what was happening for me. And I suppose it would be only over time we'd learn whether that I kept that momentum going or not, really. But maybe at that moment, I was free of the first three fetters. So Banti continues in these question and answers with the preceptors. I've heard it said that there are not senior order members sufficiently experienced to give, as it were, the further teaching that some people may need or think they need. I must say I do not agree with this. I do not agree with the idea that you need some other practice in addition to what you've already got in order to go deeper into meditation and into your spiritual life. I've said in the past that if you take even one verse of the Dhammapada and practice it seriously enough, that will take you the whole way. I certainly would not agree with someone's view that, well, I've been practicing mindfulness all these years, mindfulness of breathing, I've been practicing the metta bhavna, I've even done a bit of zazen, well, now I need something more advanced, and therefore I've got to look for a teacher who can give me something more advanced. I think this is quite a wrong attitude. There needs to be much more emphasis on the more substantial and deeper practice of what you already have, which is quite a lot. I could refer to the five principal meditation practices. One could refer to mindfulness breathing, metabarmana, sixth element. It's not very easy to go beyond those practices. If one wants to go beyond one's existing practice, the answer is that one should commit oneself to it more deeply than one has done. One can ask oneself, you know, how vigorously have I been practicing what I've already been given? Ask yourself... What have you already been given? And to what extent are you practicing what you've already been given? This reminds me again of a quote from Tenzin Palmo in The Cave in the Snow. There's this great story where she's really frustrated because she wants to be in with the monks and practicing in the monastery and everything. But because she's a woman, she can't do that. So she's sort of living in the village while all these monks are getting on with their practice in the monastery. And she's feeling more and more frustrated, more and more held back by that. 
But she meets these kind of yogis with all the matted hair, and they're very, very good with her, and they take her in as part of their sangha. And she absolutely loves them, and they're very supportive to her, and it's a very good period for her. But she receives a very good teaching for them. So this is her describing the teaching that she received from them. For a year, Tenzin Palmo lived with these remarkable men in her own room, in one of the houses of their compound. Out of all the monks, the Togdens, these are the guys with all the matted hair, the Togdens alone treated Tenzin Palmo as one of their own. And she says, On another rare occasion, when I was invited to join an initiation, I was making my way to the back of the temple, when one of the Togdens called me to the front row to sit next to him, on his tiger skin rug. Not an invitation you want to turn down, please. I sat there for hours, not moving, trying to be like the Togdens, but getting very cold. Suddenly I felt this warmth. The Togden next to me had put his long dreadlocks over my lap, covering me in a blanket of hair. (laughs) They told me that in Tibet, where they were chosen to be Togdens, they were taken up to the caves, and they were so excited about this. They felt now they were going to be great yogis. But for the first three years, they were instructed to do nothing but watch their minds and practice bodhicitta the altruistic mind. So they did that. Well, that's not bad, is it? And they did nothing else for three years. They said it was in those three years that their minds were transformed. After that, all the many practices that they did were just building up on that one foundation. One of them then said to me, you think we yogis are doing something very high, very fantastic, some very fantastic esoteric practice. And if only you had the teachings you also could really take off. Let me tell you, however, that there is nothing I am doing that you have not been taught. The only difference is that I am doing it, and you aren't. (laughs) So Don Ratti asks Bhante, it seems to me that in a lot of your teaching there are implications that still need unpacking and unfolding. I've wondered if, for example, some of your teachings around the Theravada themes or the Vajrayana themes need to be pursued in more depth, and that people, if they wanted to, could pursue it in more depth, could follow particular tracks or routes, if they would find it useful. And if they would find it useful, they could be in more contact with direct original sources that you had exposure to. For example, the interest in the Anapanasati Sutra. And Bhante says, well, again, it depends what one means by teaching it in more detail. Mindfulness means mindfulness. So we'll just unpack that, shall we? And I think if we're not too careful, if we go into too much detail, we end up with scholasticism and reading various theoretical books on the subject with lots and lots of notes. But that does not have much bearing, perhaps, on the actual practice of mindfulness. So yes, if one reads books, well, obviously one is learning from books, perhaps the whole time. And if one wants to follow up the content of a book in that way with the teacher who has produced the book, without any detriment to one's loyalty to the order, that is fine. Because one is trying, with the help of that person, to intensify one's practice of something that is already there. But I think at the same time, nonetheless, that if you just concentrate on the practice of mindfulness yourself, you will discover those things anyway. So going back to David Smith's question around the FWO and WBO and whether we're compensating for our inadequacies by imposing a system that is rigid and uncompromising. Well, to be honest, I don't think we are very rigid and uncompromising. But anyway, I do think there are a lot of traditions that do have quite strong form to them. 
I remember when I went up to Frossel Hole, which is a Zen monastery, and it was a weekend retreat, and you have all these places laid out where you eat your lunch and dinner and everything, and you have a little name place. You know, your name's on the plate, and you sit down at that place every single day. And one of the guys that was in training in that situation accidentally sat down in my place, and I sat down next to him. So I did a very kind of sudden Andy thing. I said to him, should we just swap the name tags? And actually... One of the teachers, one of the monks or nuns came up to us and they made us move our places. And I thought, oh, there is something in the form of this teaching which is to do with, you know, precision and surrender, which we don't have necessarily in our movement, but I was very respectful to what they had in their movement. So I think a lot of spiritual movements have quite a lot of form to them. I don't know if we have a lot of form to ours. Actually, I remember Shavala Malini years ago, before she was ordained. We went for a little walk around Tauraloka, and she said to me, she was very envious of Sudaya at that point, that they both become mitras together in Bristol. And then within a few months, Sudaya moved to Tauraloka. And Shavala Malini was envious of this, because she was at home looking after the children, earning a fair bit of money, and as a dentist, and living with a husband. And... As we walked around the block, she said to me, it's all right for Sudai. Of course, she wasn't called Sudai then, but she said, it's all right for Sudai. She's able to just live at Taraloka, and she'll just take off. Me, I'll still be at home, doing my own thing, blah, blah. And I said, who knows what those conditions are going to do? Your conditions, where you are at this moment, might propel you in a way that you cannot anticipate. And Sudai might struggle at Taraloka in a way that she does not anticipate which none of us anticipated, actually. And, <laughs> and they were ordained within a couple of months between them, I think. So as it was, it didn't make any difference, really. I think I was brought up quite a lot in my own family with a lot of emphasis on personal individual freedom. So I tend to look towards you know, what the individual needs in terms of their own freedom. And this has been quite interesting in the Taraloka community because it means I tend not to set very much form around any of our structures. And recently, we've had to look at that in the community and see, well, we are a community, and do we need to have more form in that situation? Do we need to say to ourselves, you know, we're going to meditate together, we're going to report in together, we're going to bring back some of these structures? Because I'd let it go a bit more kind of loose, which is my own preference, I suppose. I'm a bit more off the grid in some ways. Bandy also gives us the challenge of finding and looking for our own inner guru. So he says in that question answers, there is another point I want to make which is relevant in this connection. Some order members seem to think that the order, the movement, has carried them so far and that they need to find another teacher to carry them further. My comment on this is, if you have practised whatever it is that you've practised sincerely, any spiritual practice... For a number of years, you should be able to look within yourself. There should, as it were, emerge a sort of inner guru. If you have not, as it were, developed that inner guru who will tell you which step you need to take, then you have not deepened your practice sufficiently. If you feel the need for an outer guru, I mean after having practiced within the FWO for many years, and I mean practiced, you need to deepen your practice and contact that inner guru or inner voice, even inner intuition if you like which will throw light on or tell you what you need to do next. And of course, you need to discuss it also with your spiritual friends. So that inner voice, the inner guru, is a real inner voice, a real inner guru, and not just a whimsy or a fancy.
Yeah. I think I've managed to do this gradually over the years, particularly through solitary retreats. When I was on solitary, I think, when I lived in Glasgow, about maybe about 18 years ago, I remember coming back from a particular solitary retreat and describing a process I'd been involved with to Stuart Jodhji, who was in a relationship with at the time. I said to him, I'm now understanding a bit more what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And he said to me, thank goodness for that. I've been waiting for years for you to work out your own reference point in relationship to the spiritual life, and it sounds like you've finally managed to do it. And I've been kind of gradually building up on that, I think, that that, uh, spiritual reference point in myself. So what does that actually mean? I think it just means pursuing your own values, really pursuing your own values, working out what your own practice is, having confidence in it, gradually turning your attention to what do you have confidence in and standing on it. For me, I began to explore quite a lot of what is the authority in my life and just watching where I put that authority. How much do I allow cynicism to be an authority? How much do I allow doubt to be an authority? When actually I have a faith response which will guide me. That's how I end up with my name. I have a faith response which I can continually use as an authority if only I can listen to it. So when we join the order, I think what happens is we enter a process of developing that vertical relationship with a particular teacher. But it's not one particular person, it's with the whole order. So the collective, as in the order, begins to function for us as the vertical in our lives. I think the reason our ordination process has formed is that it is developing and purifying the very relationship that David Smith tells us that we need to have with an authentic teacher. So many, many years ago, I remember Damarati saying to me in a study group, if you can really rely on your context, something else will come from that. I went back to my community that I was living in at the time and just really allowed myself to have confidence in that context. And what happened was I'd sit down at supper and I'd just have waves of bliss going through me. It was amazing. I mean, it didn't last for very long, just a few days. But what it did show me was how we can transform our relationship to something simply by having confidence in it. So if we can have confidence in our context, then that will bring a fruit to bear. There's a little quote here from Pema Chodron, which I picked up from Papadarshan's chapter report, when she was talking a bit about David Smith in the chapter. So she says, Pema Chodron, that is not Papadarshan. You may not find your teacher in this life, your personal teacher that is. If you don't, then you need to have the Dharma and Sangha in place in your life, and that will really burst your bubble and mirror you back. So the community, the Sangha and the Order need to operate as a feedback system or a network. I began to think quite a lot about the community or the Order as a coral reef. I don't know how that translates into other languages. When I was a little girl, I was told that a coral reef would be destroyed by pollution. Okay, so the coral reef, which actually is quite interesting because it looks kind of a bit inorganic, doesn't it? It looks like it's sort of stone or something, but it's actually alive. But it's very, very sensitive to pollution and to its environment and temperature. And it will gradually die. It will die off by contact with that pollution. And at some point earlier this year, I began to think that the community was like a coral reef that we live in. And it is very easily polluted. And I think we need to look to ourselves to see what pollution we bring to that environment. In relationship to that, in my community in uh, Taraloka, on a series of NVC days that we had in January, that was uh, facilitated by Lochner, 
I asked the community to tell me what pollution I brought into that situation. So I sat and talked about my strengths and my weaknesses, but in particular my weaknesses, and I asked them in what way that affected the way that this community functioned. And I had this spare chair next to me, and one by one they sat next to me and started a dialogue about the impact I had in that situation. And the other people just witnessed it, witnessed that conversation. And, you know, we got into dialogue and then when it was finished, some, that person sat down and then somebody else sat, sat in that chair and continued the conversation. And in a way I wanted to communicate, well, not only that I do not want to be a pollution in this environment, but I also wanted to say I'm open to being modified by you. I give you permission to talk to me about what I bring into this situation. I think it's very interesting to give permission. Do we actually give permission enough for other people to engage with us? I was thinking as I went for a walk around the fields earlier that I live in a very privileged position because I do believe I probably do have permission from every single person that I live with to engage with them in terms of well, a dialogue about what they bring into that situation, which I think is actually quite a... Well, quite a rare position to be in. It certainly gives quite a responsibility sometimes to hold. Let me give you a quote from Cornfield. So this is from After the Ecstasy, the Laundry. Living closely with others rounds off your rough edges. You can't fool yourself because others see you more clearly than you allow yourself to see. It's a very bonding time. In a way, living collectively was for me as valuable as all the other meditations that I was using. It brought alive the teachings of compassion, moment to moment. If we expect community relationships to be ideal, spiritual, friendly and enlightened, we are seeking what we can't even expect of our own minds. To want the company of others without suffering is unrealistic. But if we avoid close relationships, we will also suffer. Sometimes we carry the qualities of spaciousness and love, and sometimes it is we who carry conflict and trouble. We play both roles. Both are gifts that others can learn from. If we go to the spiritual community in search of perfect peace, we will inevitably meet failure. We need to understand it as a place where we can mature our practice of steadiness, patience and compassion. We are grist for one another's mill. So what does it mean to have confidence in this sangha or this order, or having confidence in our context? Bhante asks us to take pride in our practice. I think there is more in the order and more in the more experienced order members, more possibilities than some people seem to think. A lot of it depends upon having confidence in the order, having confidence in what you've got, confidence in the teaching that you've received, and so on. We need to have even a touch of Buddha pride, Yogi Chen used to be quite fond of talking about Buddha pride. You should, in a sense, be proud of what you've got. Sometimes one gets the impression that some order members are a bit sheepish, almost ashamed of what they've got, and they cannot stand up for it in a strong, vigorous sort of way, which one should be able to do, especially after many years of practice. So I suppose my main point is that we can actually be proud about what we've got. The context in which we are swimming this coral reef is actually a vertical dimension in our lives, if only we let it be that. And I did think maybe I could just do a completely experiential kind of talk and just say, I bet if I just stand here and say, can you not just get together 
and come up with a couple of precepts that I need in my life. I'll just leave the room for 10 minutes. I bet you lot could do it quite easily. It doesn't take very much, actually, and you're all pretty... Um, you've all got your wisdom, you've all got your own experience. You don't probably need loads of contact with me to know what I'm working with. And if then I give you permission to tell me what it is, you probably could. Yeah. Kama Jyoti certainly could. So I think the Sangha could become a far greater authentic teacher for each of us. But we have to be willing to engage with it. We have to invite others to engage with ourselves. I think we also need to develop a much stronger language in that and develop a much stronger uh, language of training for insight within our communication. I've been practicing this a little bit with some of the teams at Taroka. I've been very privileged to be facilitating quite a few meetings at Taroka recently with some of the people there. And I've witnessed a few reactions between people. I suppose because of my privileged position of, well, people giving me permission to engage with them in that way, people have come into my room and asked me to give them feedback. But I think we actually do need to give each other that permission and we do need to ask for it. And if we're not interested in other people's input, why are we part of an order? That's what I don't understand. Why would we be part of a community unless we're interested in getting some input from others about the way they perceive us? But I think we do have to make that very alive for each other. So I want to encourage all of us, I suppose, to take that step. Yeah, I think we need to engage with each other actually much more strongly in terms of insight, insight practices, and training for insight. So what does that mean? I think in some respects it means developing a language. Yeah, I've been quite interested in the language of selfing. So I've been thinking a bit about that, and it's something I was mentioning in the Satipatthana session this morning. Just how do we go about selfing? It's not just a restless mind I've got. It's not just a slightly kind of irritable mind I've got. It's a mind that is perpetuating this sense of self. It's perpetuating my over-identification with a particular habit. I think it's very worth sort of, I suppose, engaging with ourselves on that level. Yeah, there have been conversations I've been having also with somebody else at Tarloka recently where we've been looking at the way she does selfing in a particular situation and just how much that, in a way, blocks communication and complicates her relationship with other people. And... I think, in a way, once we start naming it and seeing the way that we bring our ego into stuff, you know, the way we demand, you know, that our story is the story that gets heard, the more we can sort of somehow hold that back and listen to other people and engage in a much more creative way, then the more they're just going to be free-flowing relationships and much more dynamic uh, situations going to be there, creative situations going to be there. I think we need to establish much more training. And it's, I've been thinking more recently, although we've had all this emphasis on friendship and on community, I think we hardly know how to function as a community in terms of really gaining insight, almost like grappling with those issues. So maybe that's something, well, it's certainly something I'm thinking about at the moment. What is the language we need? What are the methods we need in order to do that? At Taraloka, we've been running a few retreats recently where we've been looking at different views, different Buddhist views, and the whole problem of ego clinging and the problem of self. And I've just found this language very interesting. And Dharmadina had this fantastic quote in one of her talks on this. She says, how do we shore up our ego? So shore up is this English word that means a bit like, how do you hold up a wall? You know, you have these things like flying buttresses or something, you you hold something up. So how do we shore up our ego? How do we hold it up? 
I've got another quote from Katampa teaching. The shedding of the ego is the scale that measures the practitioner. And then another quote from somewhere. Do not be lenient with ego clinging. That's another thing. How much do we indulge in ego clinging in our communication? So maybe in the modern West, we still don't really know how the practice of Buddhism is going to look. We've got a bit of an idea about how some of the traditions look, and we've certainly got an idea about what the tools are, but we don't really know how it's going to look through our modern lives, what that's going to look like. But what I'm suggesting is that it's going to come through community, and some of the other modern teachers I've been reading seem to be suggesting the same. And we ourselves are quite well placed for that because we've based a lot of our tradition on the community. Joanna Macy, interesting enough, she talks about her teachings in terms of, well, no one person is going to bring her teachings into the world. It's only going to happen through a community that takes it on. That's why she's so keen on getting involved in the FWO because she sees it as a very strong, functioning community. And if we can adopt some of her practices, then she's going to be much more effective in changing the world. So she literally sees the possibility of changing the world as coming through a community rather than through an individual. And it'll be a community that is unified through practices. She's not the only one who thinks that. Thich Nhat Hanh, he says, The next Buddha may not appear in the form of a single awakened individual. As our understanding of interdependence grows, the next Buddha may be the Sangha itself. Collectively, we will be the ones helping one another to awaken. But that's going to require us to become a much, much more effective sangha, a much more effective community, and we've got to really step up the gas, I suppose, in terms of practice and in terms of the way that we engage with one another. So I'm just going to finish with a bit of a, a quote from Banti. It's a very old quote from a talk he gave. I think it's called New Currents in Western Buddhism. And he's talking about the development of Buddhism through different cultures. So from the very beginning, Buddhism was associated with Indian culture. And then Buddhism, as we say, went from India to China. But what actually happened? Did Buddhism, just Buddhism, go from India to China? What went from India was Buddhism plus Indian culture. And then in China... Buddhism assumed certain Chinese characteristics, culturally speaking. And then, of course, Buddhism went to Japan. But again, what was it that actually happened? What went from China to Japan was Buddhism plus Indian culture, plus Chinese culture. And in Japan, Buddhism assumed certain Japanese cultural characteristics. So today, Japanese Buddhism consists of Buddhism plus Indian culture, plus Chinese culture, plus Japanese culture. And it is this Buddhism, in inverted commas, which goes, say, to the United States of America, or Britain, or even New Zealand. And sometimes, just sometimes, the Buddhism succeeds in penetrating all these layers of culture which are superimposed upon it. Sometimes it does, sometimes it does not. So really, it's going to be up to us to work out what is Buddhism and put it into the Western culture. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you 